You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Rod Norlin, currently the Kabul Bureau Chief for the New York Times. He came to the Times from Newsweek, where he was the magazine's chief foreign correspondent from 2005 until 2009. Norlin has won many awards, including two George Polk Awards, half a dozen Overseas Press Club Awards, and a shared Pulitzer Prize for news. He was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize in international reporting, was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard, and has worked as a foreign correspondent in over 150 countries. He joins us today to talk about his new book, The Lovers, published by Echo on January 26th. Welcome, Rod. Thank you. Now, the title of the book, The Lovers, sounds like it could be a book of fiction, but the subtitle is Afghanistan's Romeo and Juliet, the true story of how they defied their families and escaped an honor killing. It's a really moving book, but I think that more importantly, it also puts as it's been described, it puts a human face on the, the debate about women's rights in the, in the Middle East and sort of what we were able to accomplish or not accomplish. So please, just set it up. You, you, you use that phrase, the, sort of the Romeo and Juliet. So tell us who these, who these young people are and, and what, what their circumstances were when you first met them and got involved, and then what led you to, obviously, a full-length book. Sure. Um, I mean, the Romeo and Juliet idea kind of came up uh, almost by itself, really, the first story I did on them. They both declared they were separated at the time. She was in a shelter, and he was not able to see her. And they both declared that they, were, um, that they would kill themselves if the other person died. And, um, and I think that, um, actually, the headline writer on that story, I don't think I actually used the words Romeo and Juliet, but the headline writer use star-crossed lovers, and mm-hmm. then it just sort of picked up from there. So you were working as a reporter for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And so back us up. So, And their story is that they they had known each other since they were kids, correct? Right. They grew up together on adjoining farms, worked in the fields together, uh, tended sheep together in the mountains when they were children. Once she reached puberty, that had to end because women are strictly separated from men except for close male relatives. Um, and at that point, he started thinking about her romantically, and, and eventually she reciprocated. How did they even sort of communicate that to each other? Um, very carefully and, and very circumspectly. I mean, he proposed to her actually across a mud wall where they both pre- pretended to be looking in other directions, not paying attention to one another. Um, he then managed to smuggle her phone to her, not only smuggled a phone to her, but taught her how to use a phone. She'd yeah. never, never touched a phone before, didn't even know her numbers, 1 to 10. And um, so he set the phone up so it would dial one number his, and, and, she, and so she could figure out how to... Um, he would ring her and then hang up as a signal, and she would call him back, and they kept the phone on silent, and, and uh, they kind of courted that way for quite some time. How many time stories appeared in, in print? I wrote probably... 10 stories or so, uh-huh. and then there was a number of video reports, too, done mm-hmm. by my colleagues who worked, worked with me from the Times, um, and which that was over a period of a year, about a year, a year and a month, I think. Um, 
a lot of other newspapers picked it up, uh, particularly Afghan papers and Afghan television and so on. Um, so it got very intense coverage as, as their drama went on. And, and that was sort of a double-edged sword, correct? So tell, and and I, you've made comments about sort of your ambivalence about sort of an effort to both tell their story but help them and, and what position right. that put you in. Well, so talk to us a little bit about that. At one point, um, after I did the first story, they were, they were basically separated because she was locked up. Then she escaped. And then uh, that gave us an opportunity to do follow-ups because people were interested in, you know, what's going to happen. What usually and what almost always happens in Afghanistan is the woman is caught because it's not a country you can hide in very well. The cities, um, people are intensely kind of nervous and social, and it's, it's kind of hard to hide in, in crowds there because everybody knows who you are and who you're related to. And in the mountains, where they were from, um, they're so sparsely populated, um, but they are populated, that wherever they go, they would be spotted very quickly. So it became clear that they would eventually be run to ground, and probably she would be killed in that case, and, and um, at the very least put in jail. And, and jail's a very bad place for a woman in Afghanistan. Um, we pursued them as well, and we had some help from his family, so we were able to find them. But it was a double-edged sword because, you know, when we travel around Afghanistan, we travel with, you know, sort of, not with security in, in armed sense, but we travel in a very secure way with a large group of people, uh, several cars, and um, lots of backup systems and so on. And so we're pretty obvious. And by our, uh, the more successful we were at, at, at um, catching up to them, the more likely it was going to be that other people could find Right, that too. you would draw attention. Yeah. On the other hand, if um, the publicity that we were bringing to them, they had already, they had already both expressed an interest in seeing their story covered because they... Really? Yeah, because they knew... I mean, people... Women's advocates had persuaded Zaki, especially, who was the most vulnerable one of the two, um, that women's advocates had persuaded her that she had she was out of chances. She would, just didn't have any other options except staying in a shelter possibly permanently and maybe even being forcibly removed from the shelter by her family. And then, you know, she knew very well she would be killed. And, um, you know, or trying to get enough public attention to it that it would create a controversy and, and maybe bring some sort of help. Right. So they were in favor of that. Um, the thing is, it didn't really bring any help. It kind of kept them... Uh, I think it kept them out of jail at one point, but it didn't really resolve their situation in the end. Because, th so this story, you started following it in 2013, is that correct? Is that right? 2014, 20 I believe. 2014. Okay. February 2014. And here we are in January 2016, mm -hmm. and what's their current status? I mean, what's their, what are their living conditions? Do you know? Yeah, I do know. I've seen them pretty recently, okay. and we stay in regular touch. Um, they, they tried to flee the country um, unsuccessfully. They went to Tajikistan where they were beaten up and robbed by the secret police and deported from the country. Uh, that kind of soured them on trying to flee abroad. And uh, last year when so many Afghans joined Syrians and others fleeing into Europe, they decided not to do that. Mm. Um, they didn't, by that point, they had a baby, and they didn't want to mm. res risk the child's life trying mm. to cross the sea to Greece. And I think they made a wise decision in that sense. So they're in hiding now um, in Bamiyan, um, relatively safe for the winter because her family is no longer in Bamiyan. Um, th they're, uh, they're probably in Kabul somewhere. So it, and because Bamiyan is kind of high and remote, 
um, it's a very difficult place to go into in the winter. So they're probably safe for this winter, but come spring, I think it's hard to say what what will happen. So you work as a obviously as a reporter, mm -hmm. and you stopped and wrote a full length book. Did you take a book leave? Did you do it simultaneous? And what is what's what has been your experience in filing individual stories? And then the response that you've gotten from readers, which mm -hmm. is pretty much real time, I would expect nowadays, and now writing a full-length narrative nonfiction book, I, I actually imagine that the latter is is ever so much more difficult to sort of generate interest and mm -hmm. and and any kind of action as a response to the story. Is, yeah. Has that been your experience? Well, who was it? Was it Mark Twain or Charles Dickens? I can't remember. Who apologized to a correspondent when he wrote a letter? saying, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. And <laughs> it is really hard sometimes to get a big story into the small space of a newspaper. So actually writing the book was very liberating. I wrote it in six weeks. I just really? stopped everything. And, and I didn't really take a book leave. I had a little bit of time off and and uh, just wrote around the clock till it was done. And since I knew the material so well, it was not that yeah. really hard to do. And it was liberating because I could say everything there was to say about it, you know, things that I could only hint at maybe in some of the newspaper articles. And what is your hope? I've read the book. I've read, I've read some of the articles. Mm -hmm. What do you hope that I, A, learn, and B, do? Um, well, A is a longer, a longer answer, but B, do, is put enough pressure on people that have the power to do something about them. And I think that, that as powerful as the New York Times is, it didn't, that didn't happen in their case. And, and the, the coverage just didn't bring that about. It, it aroused a lot of interest and certainly brought them lots of supporters and some money from donors who helped support them when they were on the run and in hiding and still do to this day. Um, but it didn't, in the end persuade any governments mm -hmm. to to let them come and have asylum. And I'm hopeful that the book will put even more pressure like that and maybe will actually, you know, reach somebody. In terms of what there is to learn from it, what I learned from it, um, getting to know them and and uh, from the beginning kind of when I decided I was going to, going to do a book and had a contract with Echo to, to do a book, um, I started interviewing them a little bit more in-depth than I would have just for a newspaper article. And at first it was a little bit horrifying because they're not literate, they're not educated, um, they have kind of a limited vocabulary even in their own language. And, um, and I thought this is going to be really difficult to get, to get enough material from them about their lives and their feelings and their aspirations to actually work at book length. And the, but the more time I spent with them, the more I realized that they're there actually is, they're just as fully human and as rich and diverse and interesting as, as anybody who's very educated. And they have their own kind of wisdom and even their own kind of articulateness. They're also very interested in uh, romantic poetry. They get it mostly in the form of music from popular songs, mm -hmm. but it's often in Afghanistan, popular music tends to be based on ancient Persian love stories. Yeah. So it's um, they get a lot of literature that way, and that's a, a very big and defining part of their lives. So for me, it, um, it taught me a lot about just how even the sim apparently simplest people can be just as rich and, and interesting as, as anybody else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what has your experience been publishing a book compared to, you know, publishing story? I mean, how, how has it been in terms of just the entire process of 
of writing, delivering, you know, working on a cover, you know, all, all of that. I think, mm. I think you have a great cover, and I'm, I'm just curious how, how the process was for you. Really painfully slow. <laughs> <laughs> um, we get accused of that quite, quite routinely. Yeah, I beat my deadline to turn in a manuscript by a month. Fantastic. Back in 2014. And I didn't see any reason why it couldn't come out the following, you know, winter or spring. Right. And, in fact, it was a whole year and two months after the first manuscript was turned in. Um, And I found that a little bit frustrating. It's just definitely different than than journalists' work. And the whole business kind of works at a much slower pace in that way because it can. Um, In the end, I think it was the right thing because although I wrote the book, the first manuscript, in six weeks, it was then rewritten three or four times pretty extensively. And by me, not by uh, editors, but with a lot of good advice from smart editors. And I think that made the book better and stronger, and um, and it was worth that wait. And and I guess also a big part of that wait is the whole promotional side. That's all. it. Yeah, that's yeah. so much mm-hmm. of it. It's it's yeah. sort of coordinating the sell-in to the mm-hmm. to the various accounts, and yeah. then the the promotion and the and the marketing around mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And it's it's my first book too, so it was kind of it's been an education for me too to see how how people react to a book. A book is like right? you know. In some ways, it's kind of one of the crowning achievements of our civilization, and people take it very, very seriously, and and it's a very big deal, and um, and that's why I think maybe it would. This book might even have the power to to save them in a way that 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 newspaper articles weren't able to right. before. Right. Right. One would hope. When I asked you the question, "What do you hope for us to do?" I I was thinking it through this morning, and I was thinking, well, I should be better informed, and I should therefore, you know, maybe. Th- think of it when thinking about putting people in power that can have influence over hmm. people's lives like that, which, of course, I already tr- try to do. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of confessing to a feeling of intense helplessness over the last hmm. several years where you hmm. watch these things hmm. unfold, and it, I almost become reluctant to read your stories. I mean, you filed one recently with a, with a co-author about the, the, the boy who, uh, you know, cut off his, hand, his yeah. own uh, hand. Hmm. There was an even worse one shortly later. I didn't work on it, but my colleague did from Afghanistan where a girl who's a young woman whose nose was cut off by her husband. Oh, I did see that. Yeah, but in, even worse than that, I mean, that's pretty bad, but even worse than that, the reason he fought with her was because she objected to his taking a seven-year-old as a second wife. You know, I mean, it's just unimaginable, that kind of thing. But. How do you sustain regular exposure to this and, and the regular requirement mm-hmm. to sort of stop, process that, and then share it with me? How, mm-hmm. how, what motivates you to... to stay on that path? Well, I think because there's, there's definitely some, some benefit in doing that, you know, when those, um, even most Afghans do not approve of noses being cut off Got of it. wives. And, you know, the, even some of the worst Afghans, when they see that this is going to get worldwide attention, it does kind of It does of give them pause? Them. Okay, good. It definitely does give okay. them pause. And I think it would be even worse for women if there weren't people watching that and, and reporting on it. So, but those that are watching that and reporting on it are obviously shrinking, given everything that's happening with the challenges yeah, that's around, true. around daily yeah. newspapers. Well, I'm lucky because I work for a newspaper that isn't shrinking. So I feel really lucky to work for an organization that's, that has that, that attitude that we're going to spend what, what it takes to cover the news as well as it can be covered. So tell me a little bit about your reading habits. What do you read? 
Books-wise? Books-wise, um, I read a lot of, of fiction, and um, and I read oh, I, I read both nonfiction and fiction. I just finished SPQR, Mary Beard's mm-hmm. book on, uh, on, on Rome. I do like ancient history, and I don't read many books about war anymore. That's kind mm. of not... Yeah, double know. duty. Yeah, you don't that's, need that. That's, that's enough of that. I just read a wonderful book that I think I think um, Echo is the publisher of here, The Bees. Oh, The Bees, yeah. Oh, God, it's fantastic. It's such a wonderful parable of, you know, the... Um, of society, just generally, yeah. Yeah. And it's such a just complete act of imagination. Yeah, a very a very distinctive book. Mm-hmm. Was and so it sticks to, I did some research afterwards about oh, it's bees. Com- oh, and it's, it's completely. T- totally, totally. Completely accurate, reasonable. yes. Yeah. <laughs> You'll never look at a bee the same way. Right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I always ask this question, and it may be about the bees, but I always say, what was the last book that you had a conversation about, and what did you say? And what did you discuss? I guess it probably was the bees, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, thank you so very much. Pleasure. Yeah. It, was, it was great to speak with you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents. Now I'm going to ask you what you had for breakfast so I can make sure we've got the levels. Hmm. That's the breakfast test. Have you heard about the breakfast test? I haven't heard about the breakfast test. What is it? It's an unerring test of proficiency in the English language. If you meet somebody and you say, do you speak English? And they say, yes. You say, what did you have for breakfast today? And if they can answer that out of context like that, they actually do speak English. And why? Because lots of people can fake it. You know, like people that deal with tourists and so on, there's like set answers to set questions, and they can fake you out for quite a while making you think they actually speak English. But if they pass the breakfast test, they do. And I imagine that this is a useful test in your business. Is it? Is it important <laughs> that you sort of – but seriously, do you, is that. it important that you know – Sort of who you're dealing with and, and what their Maybe proficiency Maybe if you is. need to ask somebody if there's some danger ahead, you know, and they say, oh, no, no, no problem. You want to know if they're just saying, you know, they're responding to some other question you th- they think you asked. So, yeah, sometimes it does. Okay. But usually it's just kind of a g- giggle. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right, good to know. See, mm-hmm. I think it, I, I interpret your your line of work is always um, serious and intense, but I guess, you know, there are some giggles well, along the way. best answer I ever heard was from a prostitute in Bangkok who said, Honey, are you kidding? In this business, we don't eat breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good answer. <laughs> okay. All right.